Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about Edmonton, Alberta, or a Miskwichiwiskaigan on Treaty 6 territory and Métis Region 4. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and then we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton, a local journalism initiative driven by powerful curiosity, and this season we are digging into questions about parks and natural spaces in Edmonton. This episode starts in Emily Murphy Park, just down the hill from the University of Alberta, Maybe it'd be easier to say it's on the old river lot number three. We met in mid-May, on one of those days where the air was filled with the sound of poplar leaves and the thick, sweet taste of wildfire smoke. Trevor and Zalima and I gather around a park bench. This is official now? Now it's official. Now we're rolling. <laughs> um, thanks for coming to be on Let's Find Out. Thank you guys for the opportunity to be publicly curious. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sulima Cunha. Um, I'm a mom, um, teacher, and an artist here in Edmonton for 10 years. I do a little of both things. I teach English online, you know, like tutor lessons or in groups, depending. And with the parks, it's great because I've brought groups to, to the parks, like to the Indigenous Park, and we did some art mixed with, with English and that kind of thing, so. That's nice. Zalima Acuna is one of the listeners who came out to our live show last fall, where we invited questions about the history of parks in Edmonton. And she asked a question that I just loved because it makes you look at the map of our city more closely. It's easy to take our spaces for granted, the way our roads are laid out, how big our parks are, where they are, the funny angles where some spaces meet. But Zalima's question got us to peel back the layers a bit and see that many of the shapes and spaces we move through every day They're influenced by these decisions made by land surveyors and farmers and speculators almost 150 years ago. Can you please tell us what your question was, Zalima? Yeah, that was an awesome event. And I just got reminded of a question I had as soon as I moved to Edmonton, I think. And it was when I looked around the River Valley and I saw how all these parks and buildings were privileged to be in this um, area of town. And I started just wondering why or how they got placed there or who got to make that decision. So... But you had an interesting... You had an interesting thing you wanted to make a cross-section with, which was you asked, why do some of the old river lots in Edmonton have parks and some don't? Yes, I guess later on I realized that these areas or many areas around the river valley were called river lots and some of them weren't as developed as others and there was, I realized also there was a lot of history behind them that included our Métis communities and other indigenous groups perhaps, so yeah. How, how did you get interested in river lots? I, like, I feel like a lot of, I, I know a lot of Edmontonians I talk to don't, aren't really aware of the river lot system. And <laughs> e- even to, to be able to formulate this thing of like, how does this map overlay onto our current map is very interesting to me how you got yeah, there. Yeah, that's true. I think maybe the very first river lot I noticed was the one where the indigenous park is located and that's River Lot 11. And going there um, by myself and with groups to sketch, you know, and look around and walk and just have a break from a long day in the summer. Um, I realized that the the history was there, that uh, there was more to know. And I guess the question got (laughs) formulated that way. If you've never seen a map of the old Edmonton River Lots, you should check out the one on our website. Even if this is your first time hearing about them, you'll be shocked to see some lines you recognize in these thin rectangular strips stretching back from the north and south banks of the river. The most obvious is that river lot number one is basically the exact shape of today's Horlack Park and the golf course north of it. We talked about that more on our episode of Beautiful X Garbage Dump. But I walked the borders of it a few months ago with some friends, and the most interesting part for me was seeing that there was a diagonal road along the south edge of river lot number one and the river lots beside it, that is still a weird diagonal road through Southside Edmonton, University Ave. And in less obvious ways, these river lots have shaped basically the whole core of our city. Most of our central streets and avenues were carved out of pieces of these river lots. Um, so I thought what we could talk about today 
is an introduction for listeners for what the river lot system was. <laughs> um, uh, and one of the materials that I want to reference, um, I was able to talk to the author of it about your question so I can share his thoughts on it. Although I don't think it's a like the definitive answer because it's actually kind of a complicated question. <laughs> this book is Old Strathcona Edmonton Southside Roots by Tom Monto, which also includes a, a shorter book inside of it called Métis Strathcona by Randy Lawrence. Um, is it like a secret book that's inside the book and you pull it out and it's like a whole other book? <laughs> no, all the pages are the same size. <laughs> it's just like section one of Tom's book and then Randy's book and then section two of Tom's book. Um, uh, Miss, missed other. opportunity. <laughs> um, and then the other book that I want to look at is uh, Scona Lives, uh, A History of River Lots, 13, 15, and 17. Um, so we'll, we'll just use these as an introduction to the river lot thing. Um, I'm hoping to find us some humans um, for the next time that we get together, just have a second time where we can have some people who can try to intersect the river lot thing with the parks thing. Um, so I just remember something. After I realized that there were river lots, I went also and look at, looked at, at some maps. Um, but some of the, of the river lots that are close to the Macaulay area are not close to the river. And I also found that interesting that the geography must have changed or being interrupted somehow, the course of ravines and, um, and rivers. So, Like how far, how far away are we talking? Can, do, you, do you remember any of the specific? It would be, right now it would be between, uh, well, roughly 105 Ave and 108 Ave. Really close to Little Italy, almost. So, like it seemed weird to you that it goes so far north. Yes, I guess that's what. Okay, well, we're we're gonna talk about some of the context for why the river lot system emerged, and then we're gonna look at a map together. So, th there's there's a decent reason for um, that weird thing that you've noticed of why is there a river lot so far from the river. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so the first book we're going to look at is Southside Roots. Um, this book is written by Tom Monto. Um, so he's an Edmonton-based historian. Um, his wife owns Alhambra Books, and they co-run it together. Um, so this book is, I find it pretty well-sourced and edited. Um, it's a self-published book. It's very thorough as a guide to both many settler and indigenous community members on the south side of the river from about the mid-1800s to like the 1920s, 30s. Okay, let's flip to page 38. So, um, so we're going to look at a, a, a period of time in Edmonton's history where um, the fur trade is becoming less dominant in people's lives. Um, people are starting to move into surrounding areas, um, both indigenous, Métis, settler folks. Um, and um, there's enough people setting up farms and stuff that uh, the Dominion government of Canada wants to start like setting up some rules on <laughs> what all that land is going to be. Um, so do you want to do you, do you want to read this out? And... The Dominion government sent a survey crew to the Edmonton area in 1882. It was commonly believed the CPR would come through Edmonton on its way to the Yellowhead Pass and therefore the land had to be surveyed so that ownership could be determined. But Major A.B. Rogers, exploring for the CPR, discovered an accessible pass in the southern Canadian Rockies, today's Rogers Pass. Edmontonians were kept out of the loop, and the settlement's expectations were still high in 1882. However, the railway's arrival in Calgary the following year dashed Edmonton's hope and Calgary became an important center in what would be Alberta. 
By the time of the 1882 survey, settlers had already settled along the river from today's Horlack Park to the lower settlement, quote-unquote, in today's Forest Heights, Capilano, and Gold Bar. Their farms were located almost at random along the river, which was used as a means of travel at the time. Their gardens and livestock pens were placed conveniently near to their homes, or in locations where there were openings in the bush and trees. The Dominion surveys were instructed to survey the inhabited land along the river into mile-long thin strips running perpendicular or north-south to the river as already in use in the Quebecois river lot system. The surveyors did not try to divide the land into one-mile square sections used elsewhere in the west. Interesting, eh? Okay. Okay. One of the causes of the 1869-70 to Red River Uprising had been that government surveyors disregarded how settlers were already using the land prior to the official survey. To avoid an upset happening again, surveyors were ordered to interfere as little as possible with the existing land usage. Thus, the survey contains 22 narrow mile-long lots on the south side from Horlack Park East to about 34th Street. Odd numbers were used for the south side river lots and even numbers were used for north side river lots. The river lots vary in width as the surveyors try not to place too much of one family's improvements, gardens, fields, and so on, in another's land. So we are currently sitting in Emily Murphy Park, right along the river. We're watching this beautiful mm -hmm. summer river floating yes. by. Um, and we're on the old River Lot 3 that this is mentioned. So I'm going to pull out now. Maybe you've seen this. So this is um, a map of the River Lots as surveyed in 1882 um, by... Um, I can't remember his first name. Dean. By Dean. Um, so we're here on what was Alan Oman's um, River Lot 3, and just immediately to the west of us is River Lot 1, and basically that entire river lot became Horlack Park. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, which is kind of interesting. Um, so, looking at these um, river lots, I can see some of the, like, <laughs> long, skinny ones, really long ones. That, that might... Um, answer the thing you were curious about is like how do, how can a river lot be <laughs> so long so long and far north and still be considered a river lot yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, I had the good fortune today to be in St. Albert um, for like some historical tours Selena Lawyer was one of the um, historians that was chatting with us um, she's got a Métis and Cree background and um, she was talking about how this system of having these long, skinny lots, uh, it, it is something imported to, first to Quebec mm -hmm. from France mm -hmm. and then incorporated into Métis culture. But like something that was, was an important expression of some values that Métis folks had, which was this idea of kinship and community being part of how they wanted land split up. So if you split up land this way instead of into like big gigantic squares she was saying um one of the nice things is that like everybody gets a little bit of access to water which you might need for gardening and farming and, and whatnot <laughs> household stuff but also you get access to water for transportation which is nice yes um and also your neighbors are close so if you need help if you need to ask to like borrow some flour or something um or if you want to send your kids over to somebody else's yard for the yeah, afternoon play uh, dates <laughs> for playdates and stuff, it's easy to do. And so many of these folks um, were from Métis families and were closely related to each other. So it was like, okay, you're sending the cousins to go play with each other and the aunties can watch and see if they're getting up to any trouble and whatnot. That totally makes sense. And it's a great idea. <laughs> So th I think this is a good time to turn to Jen Olson's book, um, Scona Lives. I was just so sure that it was Scona Lives. <laughs> Could but, be. I mean, but you, you're very sure it's Scona Lives. And I have no reason to believe it's Scona Lives other than that's the way I read it. It may be more plausible that it's Scona Lives. I haven't met Jen Olson. Um, the book is based on a lot of interviews with people. So maybe that was what she meant. Yeah. 
I thought it, I thought it may be like the spirit of Old Strathcona, maybe. Yeah. Mm, like it lives forever, <clears throat> on and on. So talking about River Lots 13, 15, 17, either the husband or the wife was Métis on these lands, and all had close connection to the Papas Chase Band. These connections were either of the landowner himself or through marriage. Women played an important role in these relations, helping to link Métis families to one another for mutual support, especially during times of distress. Um, there's a really interesting um, study done by uh, historian Brenda McDougall looking at Métis families and a lot of like really strong and important family bonds in like time of nation building of, of the Métis nation um, came from sisters who would marry men and then they would all go hunt bison together and like Aww. the sisters were the link between these like quite desperate um, groups of men and, and the, yeah. But that can be a whole other episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it totally could. The women connections. <laughs> I think th this part is interesting in like how some of these river lots ended up not being owned by Métis families. <laughs> when, home starting, when homesteading started along the North Saskatchewan, major differences in the treatment of the Métis who settled on the north and south banks of the river were apparent. Both sides of the river used the French Métis river lot system, which included 220 yards of riverfront access. On the north side, most Métis families were related to high-ranking officers of the Hudson's Bay Company. Um, no one challenged the land rights of these settled Métis families. The south side Métis, however, were considered to be a lower class than the north side Métis because they retained less of their European heritage. Subsequently, many had difficulty holding title to their land. North side um, Métis were considered to be higher class, higher class, according to Jan Olson, because they had more like links to their European ancestry slash links to the Hudson's Bay Company officers. She says, Almost all the wealth transfer on the southeast side of the river was made under deceitful and unethical circumstances. Some of the Métis went to the St. Albert Mission, some moved to northern communities, while others stayed on Crown land, hoping to gain squatters' rights. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. <laughs> okay, so t when I talked to Tom in the bookstore about your question, specifically thinking about Horlack Park Emily Murphy Park. Mm -hmm. My thought was like, these are these are areas on the floodplain, and there were some big floods in the late 1800s, early 1900s that like really devastated some of the communities here. Like John Walter had um, like a, a big industrial area um, with coal and bricks and stuff um, by the Kinsman area now, and okay. um, it was super messed up. By mm -hmm. that that flooding, uh, his property flooded. So, okay. my theory was, some of these areas became parks because they're like, quite low. Yeah. Um, but he said that, the that doesn't explain fully what happened, because mm -hmm. the neighborhoods of like Rossdale, Riverdale, um, on the north side of the river are at the same have the same um, conditions, I guess. So his theory is partly. So we talked about like the core of Strathcona uh, on the south side of the river here was close to the railway. So homes and stuff were being built, land was being subdivided first. And then there was that big economic crash by the time the city had expanded, like sort of in this direction. And then by the yeah. time the economy in Edmonton picked up enough um, that they were considering building homes again in what's now Horlock Park, people were like, Actually, maybe we kind of need some mm -hmm. parks. Like the park mm -hmm. movement started, like in bigger force after that was part of his theory. And also, he figured um, the north side of the river just had like people who were there's a lot of land already developed because it was close to downtown, and there were people who kind of had entrenched economic interests that it was harder to push them off land to make parks than on the south side of the river. That's his theory. Um, but I'm curious to know, like, are there specific parks that you thought of when you thought of this question? I guess there is a, a big stretch of only houses between the downtown parks and Rondell Park. So all that is neighborhoods, including the Highlands and, mm. well, there is a, the golf course, but it's mostly neighborhoods. Is this Alberta Avenue? That is 118th Ave. The, the yeah. northern extent of the... 
What a pretty bird. Uh, the northern extent of those north side um, river lots is today's 118th Ave, which is kind of mm. neat. If you look at Highlands, you can mm-hmm. see all these roads that are kind of on a, a yes. funny angle. Yes, they do. And also around Macaulay's like that too. Mm. Mm. It creates a triangle. I guess the other place that is city owned would be what the would be the stadium, because the stadium also creates a a block there. Work. Um, the thing I'm kind of wondering is if so. You've shown us that the river lots were all designed to be kind of equal. They're all supposed to be about the same size or like the same access to the river. So why would why would one person give their land up? to become a park, like how much value, like how much financial return did they get for that? Because if this is like their whole livelihood, um, they must have gotten something for giving their land up for a park, or like how much more money would they get for like selling it off into lots and like doing all that development work that people wanted to be doing at that time. Um, so like why did, why did all these lots end up turning into park and then these lots turn into developed neighborhoods like or I wonder if was it like you still see this now out like where the suburbs are being developed there's like all this development and then there's like one farmer's field where like that farmer just really wants to keep farming and like keep living their life on that land and so like is it are the south side lots where the people just wanted to stay and they stayed and stayed and stayed as long as I could and then at the end the city was like Okay, I'll take it all now <laughs> and because they had so much they could turn a lot of it into the parks. Every area is different with different conditions, different uh, geographical characteristics so mm. it makes sense that every area would have a different ending. <laughs> It was fascinating to read these sources and compare them with what Tom Monto told me, that Horlack Park especially represented an era of riverlot land that was still available to turn into parkland, partly because of Edmonton's economic slump after 1912. But I knew I couldn't really fully answer Zalima's questions on my own or with these text sources. I needed help from folks who've researched Edmonton's riverlot history. And fortunately, we found some. We decided to meet at Zalima's place on the north side of the river this time, close to Alberta Avenue, Biking over through the orange-gray wildfire smoke was tough on the old lungs, so this time we met inside. Trevor couldn't make it to this one, so I waited with Salima in her living room with a glass of water for the arrival of two guests whose local history work I really admire, Connor Thompson and Dylan Reed. Hello. Hey, Connor. Salima, yes, welcome. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Uh, Connor Thompson. This is Larry. Feather. Excellent. Pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming on such short notice. Oh, it's uh, I actually needed a reason to get out of the house. I've been uh, locked up in post production on the video series now for well since February first, seven days a week. Oh it, uh, It's nice to have something else to think about. Um, feel free to. You you got maps. It looks like. I do. Yeah. That's great. Oh, oh. My name is Connor J. Thompson. I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of Alberta. Um, and pretty much as long as I've been interested in, in pursuing history in an academic capacity, I've been um, interested in the history of Edmonton specifically. I've lived here uh, for most of my life. Um, and yeah, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to uh, research uh, river lot history for the Edmonton City as Museum project uh, and wrote an article about that. Yeah, which is a lovely article. And also, Connor was my predecessor on my student association as president, which, so I've, I've leaned on him many times for advice. Thanks, Connor. <laughs> uh, my name is Dylan Reed. I've, uh, I've had a 30-year uh, career as a documentary film cameraman uh, and filmmaker specializing in IMAX and IMAX 3D. And I was working on an IMAX set mostly internationally over the course of my career, but in 2008 to 2012, I was working on one of the few projects that I had ever worked on in Alberta. It was a film about the uh, steam locomotives and the history of the steam locomotives. 
Working on this film gave Dylan an appetite for going into archives. And now... Me. Um, diverted onto a course of research that started with photographic research and then textual research, oral histories, and then ultimately in a land-based deconstruction. And that's where my brain has been for a lot of the last 10 years. Um, I also have a great uh, love of Edmonton history and uh, a belief that it's underappreciated, that there's there, there are a lot of incredible people, city builders, town builders, village builders, and a lot of stories that we really need to work collectively to bring to the surface. That's great. My first thoughts, I guess, um, when I heard that question were, I mean, I, I think the river lots are such an interesting bit of history that not a lot of Edmontonians are aware of. And I, 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 I find that interesting because the, I, I would say that the history of this place as sort of a center of the fur trade is very well known, thanks, thanks to Fort Edmonton Park and um, other forms of commemoration. Um, you know, people might not know the specifics, but they, they know like Klondike days. The, 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 like there's all, all these period um, elements of 19th century history that uh, Edmontonians are very, uh, I would say, very aware of, very familiar with. Um, but for some reason, that Riverlot history has been underrepresented. I, I, I mean, there's Enu Park now, Riverlot 11 uh, uh, Park, which, which commemorates that. There's um, plaques that, that sort of mention that. But it, it's also fascinating to me, I guess, because uh, many of these river lots lasted in the, like well into the 20th century. Uh, this might be a conversation to develop later. Um, but, you know, on the, the southeast side of Edmonton, there, the, the, there was still farmland there until the 1950s. Uh, for example, um, and, and, and that was uh, settler farming. But th this also really is uh, an element of Edmonton's history that stretches, uh, you know, well, well into the, the 20th century. And yet it's something that certainly when I first heard about it, I was very surprised. Dylan pulled out map after map and laid them out on Zalima's ottoman. It was Colin Fraser that sold the first lot to Frank Oliver, mm -hmm. which kind of you know, kick-started the selling of lots. That continued for some time. Um, and then the Hudson's Bay Company decided to subdivide part of their reserve, which was initially this, um, the entirety of what, what are now also parks. Uh, and I, I was at the, the last trip I made before the pandemic was to the Hudson's Bay Company archives so that I could transcribe the town lot sales, which happened in 1881, um, because that really gave a sense of where, you know, outside of Colin Fraser's lot and the two of them uh, adjoining, that's where the bulk of land sales were. And what what you can see in that, that period of 1881, like they, they had a, a sale on Jasper Avenue where essentially in an hour and a half they sold all of the lots that they had offered that day, which went to people that lived here and generally up in this, on the bluffs above. And then uh, the following April, they had a town lot sale in Winnipeg, which was bought up entirely by speculators who bought up huge chunks of what's now the Ross Flat, huge chunks of what's now Victoria Park. Luckily for us, then they announced that the train wouldn't be coming through. Edmonton went into a bust every last one of these speculators lost the land that they had bought. Hudson's Bay Company kept their deposits and held on to it. But then because we were in a, a period of stasis for a long time, there wasn't a, the, the anticipated boom because of the railway, there wasn't all this development. So that land was dormant, reverted to Hudson's Bay Company hands and kind of stayed that way when the rest of the town started taking off. And so when you think about the transition from 1899 to 1903, where more and more these these adjoining river lots are, you know, everybody else is jumping on the bandwagon. They're starting to sell off their property, um, and Edmonton is just expanding so quickly that within, you know, the boom of the early 20th century, there was a bit of a of a bust uh, around 1907, but then it picked up again, and all of a sudden you've got this whole. Like a lot of what's today, uh, modern Edmonton has been divided up into private lots. And so I think the, the explanation for why we don't have more larger parks in the immediate downtown core was just that explosive growth. Edmonton grew so fast. Um, if you think about 1900, most of this, what's now the city was still parkland. It was 
people described it as being one of the most spectacular views in the Dominion. Um, and you get that going back to the beginning of the fur trade, people coming in and saying, this is, this is incredible here. We catch glimpses of it in the autumn when we stand up in the escarpment and look out at some of the parks, but um, you know, it really was considered something else. And so there was no need to be thinking about parks as long as you had slow growth. Then all of a sudden you have this period from 1900 to 1906 and then 1908 to the First World War where I think even our, in our wildest dreams, we can't imagine how fast this city was expanding. All of a sudden, the parkland is potential parkland is all gone. And then people started waking up around 1905, starting to think, well, maybe we, we need to do some preservation here. Yeah. Um, yeah, just to add on to that, um, you know, settler interest in the beauty of the river valley specifically was was quite early um like in preparing for this i found an article in um the south edmonton news from 1895 that was talking about uh, basically uh, driving along um, saskatchewan drive and and just how gorgeous that view of the river valley was and they they'd said even then like we should really preserve this um and uh, yeah, I mean, um, it was only 12 years later, 1907, uh, where there was a report, a proposal, I should maybe say, uh, from a landscape architect named Frederick Todd um, that said, you should preserve the River Valley. Um, and Frederick Todd is an interesting person um, in, in Canadian history, probably North American history. Uh, he, he was one of the leading uh, thinkers in the Garden City movement. Uh, he worked uh, with Frederick Law Olmsted, uh, the guy who designed Central Park, for example, in New York. Um, and Todd w w was fairly adamant that the river, the river Valley itself could form the basis of a large interconnected series of parks or a single park. Um, City officials, uh, for all the reasons uh, you just mentioned about this rapid growth, uh, largely ignored it um, until uh, the big flood um, in 1915. Um, and at that point, I mean, you had all this industrial development that was going on in the River Valley, uh, lumber yards, brickworks, um, all of which was, was pretty much wiped out. Um, and so at, at that point, um, there was a little bit of a practical reason that uh, kickstarted uh, this more concerted attempt to, um, on the part of the city, to, to buy up that land um, and preserve it for a park system. Um, but there's also interesting examples, um, I guess, that um, are more specific in terms of how the river lots convert directly into parks. Um, so one of them is the University of Alberta um, was originally Riverlot 5. Um, the government bought it from Annie Simpson, uh, who was the owner at the time. And that became the initial land grant for the U of A. Uh, enormous, I, you know, you can see it even on the, the map there. Um, it's th this enormous area that was just granted to the university. Um, and uh, that's maybe one example, a uh, specific example of how you could have um, essentially something akin to parkland preserved is because any any development that's going on, on on that particular plot of land is at the, you know, the behest of, of the University of Alberta. So for quite a long time, um, there's really beautiful park space that that is preserved there. Um, there's gardens, uh, experimental sort of gardens, experimental farms um, on that land as well. I brought up Trevor's question about whether individual river lot owners had wanted to sell their land to the city specifically to become parks. It didn't seem like this was the case. No, although I, especially on the, the eastern um, sort of, uh, because you can even see it on this map. There, there, there's multiple river lots to the east that either stayed farmland, stayed in private hands um, for quite some time. And I, I imagine um, in those places, the 
because I, one example that I think of is the Gold Bar Farm, uh, which you know was I, I think the the very very last river lot that was sold. Uh, by that time, there was already this vision of a river valley, and so when that was purchased, um, of course, there's sort of a private developer that handles um, turning it into the neighborhood of Gold Bar. Um, but by that point, there might have been a discussion of the, like these areas are going to be parks. Uh, there's also Gold Stick Park, for example, which I know was part of the developer's uh, vision for that neighborhood. Um, but I no, I, I can't think of an example off the top of my head of where uh, an owner of a river lot said, um, you know, I want this specifically to be to be parkland. Um, but even in, in these areas, uh, more centered on uh, present day downtown um, Strathcona, the sort of White Avenue area of Strathcona and so on. Um, as I remember, most of that stayed parkland, um, essentially. Um, and I, I think that has more to do with, with sort of the, the features of the landscape. Um, you know, with the exceptions of like the coal mines and, and things like this, uh, there obviously was industrial development already in the river valley, but I, th yeah, some of that probably just stayed parkland more out of kind of a practicality than anything. But. Dylan, we'd ask you to think about some specific parts of town. Do you want to talk about some of the parks that you'd look sure. into? Um, I guess first, I mean, uh, listening to Connor, he's triggered a lot of um, a lot of good connections that I, I don't think I'm going to even be able to remember all of them. But um, I think it was great that uh, that you set up the the City Beautiful movement, the Garden City movement, and, and Frederick Todd, um, because really that's that's the beginning, the genesis of anybody thinking about parks in Edmonton. You know, we talked about the fact that the the city had grown so quickly that it, it just overwhelmed what natural space was there and i think it was it was in 1905 that we get the first mention of the streets and parks committee with the city of edmonton where they started thinking uh maybe we should be doing something here um but without any real um visionary ideas i mean it was things like planting tulips on mcdougall hill <laughs> below the school and uh you know they you, you touched on the this idea of the river drive that was one of the key goals of the Edmonton City Beautiful movement was to preserve the entire escarpment up and down uh, both sides of the river. And it's, it's a pity that they didn't do that uh, instead of dividing it up into town lots because, you know, we would have these boulevards now that initially they might have had businesses along them, but now we would, we would have continuous uninterrupted view with cafes and restaurants and it really would be something else. But the um, 1905, the Streets and Parks Committee uh, and then the Edmonton Board of Trade was agitating for a vision of parks. They were the kind of the leading proponents of it. And then um, the Balmer Watts came into town, uh, Arthur Balmer Watt, who was the, the publisher of the Edmonton Capitol. Uh, and his wife Gertrude, Women's Canadian Press Club, and they, within a month of being in Edmonton, they became very eloquent uh, spokespeople and proponents for the idea of bringing in landscape architects, turning Edmonton into a garden city. And I don't think it's any coincidence that uh, on the same day that uh, the Balmer Watt published an editorial saying we should bring in a landscape architect, uh, that the merchant Johnny McDougall bought uh, the entirety of the exhibition grounds. What was the exhibition grounds up to that point? What we think of as the Ross Flat now. Um, and then they brought in Todd. And I, I actually, um, the reason why I can I can speak to to Parks and the City Beautiful movement, I had received a grant from the Edmonton Heritage Council in 2017. Uh, I did a um, presentation, a stereoscopic visual presentation where we converted the Capitol Theater into a 3D theater. And I did a presentation, a co-presentation with Daryl Babick, uh, an historical architect in Edmonton who has a great love of all things City Beautiful. And so, um, you know, it, it, it was researching the genesis of parks, understanding that we went from Balmer Watt to, to Todd. I actually looked for a long time for Todd's original conceptual paintings. I finally located it at the uh, Hudson's Bay Company archives, 
but they couldn't find it. They lost it. And they kept looking for a year and a half and finally uh, did find it. And I'm, I'm glad you brought them up because that's one of the maps that I brought. The Frederick Gage Todd map, the 1907 City Beautiful Plan, which incorporates the um, the parks that had already been established by the city at that time. There weren't a lot of them, but they, they were uh, substantial just for the fact that they were preserved in all of this expansion. Uh, and then we have it color-coded with um, the additions that Todd has added, which includes uh, large portions of the valley. Um, significantly, uh, what they call the West End Park is now um, Borden Park. East End Park is now Coronation. And I think, I mean, the, the story of those two parks is worth telling. I was on the heels of this, um, you know, the agitation largely by private citizens for, for creating a garden city, creating a huge, like preserving our parks and our natural spaces. When we look at Victoria Park, for example, which was part of uh, Todd's proposed addition to the parks, that could have been gone by then because it had been sold to Winnipeg investors, it had been subdivided. It was only because of the collapse of the know, the, the anticipated railway boom um, that that reverted to Hudson's Bay Company hands. And so because of the railway uh, bust, you know, we, we can thank all of those southern parks um, across the map. Situation Riverdale. Riverdale was actually the beginning of industrial development in Edmonton. 1881, they built a sawmill there. The area was called Slabdown for a period of time, a mill built by um, John Norris, uh, Donald McLeod, the Riverlot Settler, and the Belcher Brothers, subsequently purchased by Richard Hardesty, the chief factor of, of, HBC. of Hudson's Bay Company. Yeah. And he got into trouble because um, it was a conflict of interest with the Hudson's Bay Company mill, and so he kind of masked it with Daniel Fraser. We, we think of it as the Fraser uh, mill, but it was actually Richard Hardesty was the, the money and the brain behind it. Uh, and as a result, that, that whole flat became industrial. There were coal mines there, there was the little brickyard, and that took us well into the 20th century. So that's why there, there's no parks there. In the context of Frederick Todd, I know um, one of my fellow historians laureate, Marlena Wyman, would want me to mention Gladys Reeves, who carried the torch of the City Beautiful Movement in Edmonton for a long time, and she was also the first woman to hold the position of president of the Edmonton Horticultural and Vacant Lots Garden Association, and um, helped keep some land as um, garden and, um, yeah, help, help kind of carry that spirit of, of building parkland around here. And I think there are a lot of women that you have to put at the forefront of that movement. Um, Gertrude Balmer, what I mentioned, I, I would say that she was the, like the, the kingpin. Um, the Women's Canadian Press Club, the Women's Canadian Club of Edmonton, Daughters of the Empire, all of these women or, uh, organizations of entirely women were among the leading voices. So we have we have the Board of Trade, we have uh, you know a lot of independent people pushing the movement, but it really was the the female voices that were spearheading it. People like Emily Murphy, um, who we associated with other causes. I mean, City Beautiful was. Um, the main focus of Edmonton. It was one of the main political focuses. Mayors ran their camp campaigns on it. Um, I just want to wrap up with the, um, the what was called the East End and West End Parks, what's now Borden Park and Coronation Park. It was in this moment where Edmonton was continu continuing to explode. The, they kept annexing new portions, river lots were being sold, and property was trading hands so fast and accelerating at such a um, rate, at one point, these two pieces of land came available. Uh, and it was an exact point that the mayor and council were out of town. They were in Winnipeg on a holiday. And this opportunity came up. Property was not on the market for more than a couple of days at a time. And so the aldermen who were in the city right now, or at, at the time, they recognized that there was no time to act on this because you need 60 days to put it before the ratepayers to even get them to approve it. And so in something that, you know, I think is unprecedented and is worth celebrating is that the aldermen themselves pooled together the money to buy these pieces of property. The, uh, the Kirkness estate, um, and then on, on the other end was the Bouchard estate, they called them at the time. And so they advance the funds themselves with the expectation or the hope that city council would then come back and say, yeah, yeah, we'll approve this. Uh, and it's because of those aldermen that, uh, that those two parks exist now. 
Uh, and I, I don't remember them all. It was like William Griesbaugh, the future mayor and general, and uh, Joseph Henry Picard, George Sanderson, Daniel Fraser. Uh, I don't know who all put the money up. I think the only person who was opposed to it was Alderman uh, Bellamy, and I'm not sure why that would have been, because he was certainly a, a supporter of the, the City Beautiful movement. But you know, we could have easily lost those. They were pride. They were up for sale for private land transactions, and it was only the quick-thinking aldermen who put themselves out on the line to to acquire it. Uh, that we have those properties. Interesting. That was very fortunate. Lima, tell me what you're thinking right now. It's, it's great to hear these stories uh, around how some parks became parks and um, also why some other land is what it is now, more populated. And um, I think um, the fact that the stories all have um, reasons and all these people involved, it makes it even more... It, it brings me to our days and how every decade, every season, we have had the same uh, opportunities to make decisions about our parks, about our cities. And and it's not uh, something that just started at one point, got decided, but we continue to see this every day and even in our present, on our city. Hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't one moment of people being like, okay, parks, it's been this yeah. passing of a baton from one yeah. generation. and I think it has always been a need whenever we become um, a community and we grow and we start seeing these, need, these needs and parks are always part of what we need, um, as well as other services. And there is always someone willing to um, create that and facilitate that for others. For either of you, Connor or Dylan, like, are you aware of, you know, you hear about these like needle houses where like people refuse to sell the land where they live on to build a highway. And so you get like a house in the middle of like a 12 lane freeway. I'm curious, are you aware of any river lot owners who ref like refused to or were not interested in subdividing and developing their land? And thus there were kind of large chunks that, that made easy parks. I'm seeing a, a head shake from Dylan. Yeah, I, I would say that uh, I see the exact opposite. I, I think that the, you know, particularly when you look at those who settled on the north side of the river, there are examples of Hudson's Bay employees on the south side, William Byrd, William Maver, uh, you know, a number of people. I, I think the division there was that on the north side of the river was the aristocratic component of the Hudson's Bay Company, the, the upper management, Richard Hardesty, Ed McGillivray, William Lucas Hardesty, um, you know, they, and those under the influence uh, or f married into the, the, the Reverend George McDougall family, like it was quite a, a cluster there. They knew what was coming. Um, they, they knew in advance that the surveyors were coming, Sanford Fleming, they, they knew that the plan was to have a railway through there. They knew that that land was going to be valuable. And the you know what's surprising about the Edmonton River lot narrative is that for the most part it was a very short story from the first lot that was surveyed in 1872 it filled up quite quickly but literally came to an end overnight in 1882 February and March April um, it started with uh, Colin Fraser sold his entire river lot that, that he hadn't already sold to John McDougall the merchant who then resold it um, and then you had these two cousins coming into town, Sheriff Walter Scott Robertson and um, Alexander McDonald, the A. McDonald Company. You've probably seen that, that building by the, the arena. And between those two, they gobbled up most of the downtown, uh, including purchasing River Lot 20 from Kenneth McDonald and some that then reverted following the collapse. They didn't honor their what they had uh, promised with him. And so I think in the case of McDonald and William Rowland, it reverted back to them again. But this literally happened overnight. And the numbers that they were receiving were astronomical for the time. Colin Fraser sold for $10,000, which compared to, you know, the fact that two years before that, there were a lot of lots changing hands for $25 and a gun or, or a horse. Um, they knew that they, they, would, they would be in a position to profit off of a town here. I think everybody always had a great confidence in Edmonton that it was going to be a center. And so when the time came, 
it, it was literally in the space of a month that most of the downtown ceased to be a river lot narrative and started being a town development narrative. Um, and so then as, as you get, you know, you look at this succession of maps where, where the corporate limits of Edmonton expand so quickly, every time it came up to another river lot, you would see those settlers jumping in and subdividing and jumping in and subdividing. And so that's when we talk about Borden Park, the moment that that river lot was being subdivided, that's when the aldermen thought we got to get get in there and, and get a park. So yeah, I, I, I kind of see the opposite thing. I think for the most part, people were ready to sell and either stay, like you mentioned. I think a lot of the Métis settlers or the mixed families stayed exactly where they were. Kenneth MacDonald, like they kept the brow of the hill and kind of the, the places with the best views. But um, it was a very rapidly evolving story. Thank you. Zalima, I'll, I'll give you the last word. Ah, no pressure. <laughs> uh, Wow, I'm really um, surprised to hear all the that unfolded. This definitely helps me see Edmonton more as uh, the way I used to see my hometown, Barranquilla in Colombia, because growing there, you go to school, you hear all the stories and it's years of learning the background of the place where you live. But being in Edmonton and not knowing that was kind of a missing piece in, in the puzzle. And it is important to me to be able to talk to my son about these things and also hear from him whatever he's going to learn um, also. And definitely, uh, whenever I look at the River Valley now, I'm going to see it with different eyes. Um, and I really appreciate the, the help that Connor and Dylan uh, have offered with all their knowledge and willingness to share this. And yeah, thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Let's find out as a proud partner of Taproot Edmonton, a local journalism initiative that is doing fascinating, curiosity-driven, thoughtful reporting in our city. If you want to support Let's Find Out, become a Taproot member. For just 10 bucks a month or $100 a year, you can help ensure that everyone continues to have free access to Let's Find Out and other podcasts like Bloom and Speaking Municipally. Plus the rest of Taproot's coverage of city council, food, arts, tech, and the like. You can learn more at taprootedmonton.ca slash join. And you can also support Let's Find Out by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast player you use. This episode was produced by Trevor Chow Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you to this month's guests, Zulima Acuna, Connor Thompson, and Dylan Reed. Additional research help for this episode from Selena Lawyer, Amber Paquette, Christina Hardy, Tom Monto, Miriam Haffey, Nathan Benema, Rocky Ferro, Luke Wanick, Alex Pulwicki, Eric Gormley, Christine Kualchuk, and I'm sure other folks. Thank you to all of you. Original music by the indubitably lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Until next time, keep your questions coming.